I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm here with David Stevenson, an Associate Professor in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Stevenson has written a prospective article on the Medicare hospice benefit, and we're discussing hospice and other end-of-life care in the United States. Dr. Stevenson, as you note in your article, more than half of the U.S. hospice market now consists of for-profit agencies, some of which have a national presence. What does the for-profit turn mean for patients and for Medicare? So as you know, most of the recent growth in the hospice sector has been in the growth of for-profit hospice. In fact, for-profit hospice agencies have accounted for almost all of the growth in hospice over the past two decades. The positive aspect of this growth is that Medicare beneficiaries have much improved access to hospice care over what they had previously. But the challenge of the growth comes in managing appropriate use of the hospice benefit. There's a clear difference between the types of patients for-profit hospice agencies care for versus who not-for-profit hospice agencies care for. For For-profits disproportionately enroll individuals who have non-cancer diagnoses, such as Alzheimer's, dementia, and other neurological conditions. And in particular, they enroll uh, people living in nursing homes disproportionately. Now, for-profits tend to enroll patients, not surprisingly, with much greater length of use, 30 days longer on average than those in not-for-profit agencies. And those people just happen to be also more profitable uh, in terms of payments that agencies receive. Now, to the extent that this represents a segmentation of the hospice market, the not-for-profits care mostly for people with cancer, the for-profits care mostly for people without cancer diagnoses, it's not necessarily problematic. But there are articles in the popular press and also related government investigations that allege potentially inappropriate referral practices and also aggressive marketing campaigns that raise flags about potential conflicts of interest and also misuse of the benefit, at least among a subset of providers. Now, I don't want to minimize these challenges, but my view is that reforming the way that we pay for Medicare hospice generally will go a long way toward addressing what has become characterized only as a for-profit problem. Now, if we better align payments with the needs of the patients who use them, I think we can simultaneously address the incentives that for-profit providers have been particularly sensitive to, and some might argue particularly aggressive about. Now, one might also wonder whether further development of hospice quality reporting and even transparency standards could help facilitate consumer choice and competition on quality. And I'd point to the nursing home sector as a potential example of where this has taken place. One of the problems you point to with the current approach to hospice is that it's clinically arbitrary and practically difficult to define eligibility on the basis of a prognosis of death within six months. Can you elaborate on what that requirement has meant for the program and why you think it should be changed? My understanding of the six-month requirement is that when it was initially instituted in the, in the Medicare hospice program back in 1983, is that it was less about containing the cost of the benefit than it was to reflect standards that existed in other hospice programs at the time. Over time, though, limiting the benefit in this way to the people with six-month prognosis or less has likely served an important role in limiting the scope of the benefit and maintaining its focus on end-of-life care as opposed to on palliative care more generally. The practical implications of the prognosis standard, though, have likely evolved, in particular as the patient population has changed from one being mostly people in the community with cancer to being mostly people with other chronic conditions, often living in assisted living facilities and nursing homes. More specifically, the six-month prognosis requirement is arguably harder to align with today's hospice users than the population that was served 20 years ago, something that reflects the, cons- that reflects the considerable uncertainty involved in prognostication generally. Now, much of the focus around prognosis and duration of use in hospice has centered on very long stays and centered on containing what's called the long stay problem, whether it's in requiring face-to-face 
uh, certification from physicians for lengths of stay that would be over 180 days, or whether it's examining hospice agencies that have excessively long use in, in enforcing the hospice cap. This is where much of the policy focus has been. But an equally vexing problem in hospice has been patients who enroll too late for hospice to be of any benefit to them. Often within days of death, often they enroll too late to benefit at all. And this has led Craig Earle and others in the palliative care field to argue that hospice must be about more than just managing death. So eliminating or broadening the six-month prognosis requirement would almost certainly open up hospice to a broader population, in addition to introducing it earlier in the disease process, especially if the need to forego curative treatment were modified as well. In fact, you criticized the hospice program for forcing patients to choose between curative and palliative therapy and for reinforcing the notion that hospice care falls outside the core competencies expected of other Medicare providers. The solution you propose is to integrate hospice services into standard Medicare benefits and to allow patients to begin receiving those services at any point, whether or not they're still receiving more aggressive therapy. Practically speaking, what would such integration look like? So one way that such integration would look is the concurrent care hospice demonstration, which is part of the ACA. And it's currently in the planning phases. And the concurrent care hospice demonstration will allow individuals to receive both hospice and curative care at the same time. Now, this is an approach that's been used by other organizations like Aetna, and they've had great success with it in terms of expanding hospice to individuals earlier uh, in their prognosis, lessening the intensity of use, and also lessening the overall cost of services uh, that people use. So another example of how hospice could be more tightly integrated into Medicare benefits more generally has to do with the Medicare Advantage program. I point out in the perspective piece that hospice is the only traditional Medicare benefit that's carved out of the Medicare Advantage program. Carved out meaning that it's financed and delivered separately. If an individual elects hospice as a Medicare Advantage enrollee, the Medicare Advantage plan does not organize or finance those hospice services. A separate hospice agency does. Now, if one could imagine integrating those hospice services into what Medicare Advantage plans do for that individual, that is coordinating their range of services that they receive, one could imagine that the Medicare Advantage plan would want to develop greater capacity in terms of its end-of-life care services and would have a greater incentive to coordinate services across the spectrum as opposed to viewing that as a carve-out that they're not responsible for. Another example of how hospice could be more tightly integrated into the services that Medicare beneficiaries receive has to do with beneficiaries who reside in nursing homes. Currently, nursing home residents who are Medicare beneficiaries, if they elect hospice, a separate hospice agency provides those hospice services and they continue to receive room and board services from the nursing home that they're a resident of. One could imagine having hospice more tightly integrated into what the nursing home is responsible for more generally. As opposed to having a separate entity manage services related to an individual's terminal condition, the nursing home could be held responsible for that individual's terminal condition. And payment for those services could be bundled into what the nursing homes receive. And of course, the nursing homes or the Medicare Advantage plans or other entities who receive these bundled payments that include hospice services in addition to what they typically provide, the quality of that care and the services that individuals receive at the end of life will have to be monitored. It would be unfortunate if a nursing home received additional payment f to provide end-of-life services, but then did nothing in the way to provide them, didn't provide high-quality end-of-life care, because hospice has been integral in improving the end-of-life care that nursing home residents receive. It's been integral 
in improving the end-of-life care that Medicare Advantage beneficiaries receive. Um, and so I wouldn't want to undermine that you know, substantial benefit. So continuing with nursing home residents, last year we published a prospective article about reducing preventable hospitalizations among them. And that outlined the perverse incentives that are built into the reimbursement rules of Medicare and Medicaid. To what extent are our current payment systems responsible for inappropriate and non-cost-effective care toward the end of life, including the problems that you outline with hospice? So one point I make in the perspective is that the provision of hospice and palliative care more broadly needs to be considered as part of the health system as a whole, as opposed to being held out as totally separate. Right now, hospice functions almost as an escape hatch that can be deployed at a specific point in time in an individual's illness trajectory. Research has shown that it can be hard for clinicians and families to know the right time to enroll given hospice eligibility requirements. Now, a trickier challenge is that treating hospice as a separate oasis leaves untouched the other parts of our health care system that still hum along, largely paying for greater intensity of services. One example I cite in the perspective is that hospice is the only traditional Medicare service that's carved out of the Medicare Advantage plan, something that seems counterintuitive given the ostensible focus of this program on coordinated care that meets all of an individual's needs. Now another example highlighted by a recent research paper pertains to the barrier that the Medicare skilled nursing facility benefit presents to appropriate hospice use at the end of life. If an individual who's reaching the end of their life is hospitalized, from the nursing home they're hospitalized, and then they go back to the nursing home after that hospital stay. They often go back to the nursing home as a skilled nursing facility resident, even though hospice might provide greater benefit to them in meeting their end-of-life needs. Now, there are many reasons they might go back as a skilled nursing facility resident. Key reasons have to do with financial incentives. The skilled nursing facility payment is higher for facilities than receiving the you know, the basic room and board rate along with the hospice payment that the hospice agency receives. The other thing is that from the individual's perspective, it can be beneficial to be on the skilled nursing facility benefit as well. The skilled nursing facility benefit pays for room and board. The typical person who's receiving hospice does not have room and board paid for unless they're Medicaid eligible. And so there can be per these perverse financial incentives for someone who goes to the hospital, even people with advanced dementia, who have end-of-life needs and who are clearly entering the last phase of their lives to come back on a skilled nursing facility rehabilitation benefit as opposed to as a hospice recipient. And these types of things could be changed if payment were more integrated and if hospice were more integrated into what the, what the nursing homes and other parts of the health system uh, need to do. In other words, there's value in having this escape hatch. Hospice is an escape hatch from a system that many think is dysfunctional at the end of life but there arguably could be greater value in integrating this escape hatch into the core of what we do for people with life-threatening illness. More generally, health economists and policymakers have stressed the disproportionate amount of healthcare spending that occurs in the last six months, the last 12 months of life. What else do you think can be done about that? So attention is often drawn to the fact that 25 to 30 percent of Medicare spending occurs for people in the last year of life. It's not unlike drawing attention to the fact that a small percent of people tend to account for a large percentage of healthcare spending more generally. Now, the first thing to note about this spending in the last year of life figure is that it's arrived at retrospectively. There's no announcement that someone's crossed this threshold and that care should adapt to this new reality. So it's hard to tell when someone's one year out from dying or six months out from dying, something that relates back to the prognosis requirement I talked about earlier. And the second thing to note is that this figure has been remarkably stable 
over the last few decades. Despite substantial changes in the use of hospice, despite substantial changes in what medical technology can do for people at the end of life. Now one might ask why this hasn't gone down given the substantial expansion of hospice among Medicare beneficiaries. One answer suggested by analyses by Amber Barnato and colleagues is that the substantial expansion of hospice, which you would think would reduce the intensity of services at the end of life, has been balanced out on the other side by high intensity services that are received by people who go into hospitals and are not hospice beneficiaries. And so you almost have a two-pronged distribution in the sense that you have these very low intensity users in hospice and then very high intensity users in the hospital. So what to do about this? Not dissimilar in some ways to how care for expensive patients you know, should be treated more broadly. I think we have to try to align financing and delivery to provide high quality care that's well coordinated and aligned with patient preferences. However care is financed generally, I think hospice and palliative care should play an integral role in that financing and delivery. Ideally, beneficial hospice and palliative care services could be introduced at any point in a patient's care, regardless of their prognosis. Now, ensuring greater continuity of care consistent with the broader aim of reorienting Medicare toward flexible, patient-centered care driven by patients' needs, rather than by narrow eligibility and payment policies, I think that should be a goal that our Medicare program has and that policymakers have in instituting changes. The proof really will be in the quality of end-of-life care that Medicare beneficiaries receive, not just in the cost of that care. You mentioned earlier that the Affordable Care Act authorized a 15-site demonstration project for concurrent care, testing an approach of permitting patients to receive hospice and curative care simultaneously. Do you know what stage that project is at? To my knowledge, the project's still in the planning phases and it's not yet been implemented. For instance, I don't think the 15 sites have been selected yet. Now the promise of such an approach is that it will take away the current all or nothing decision that Medicare policy forces beneficiaries to make at the end of life and to reduce one of the key enrollment barriers to hospice. That is, by enrolling in hospice, an individual has to forego all curative treatment for that particular condition. Now I think the key questions in moving forward on this concurrent care demonstration what are the implications of such an approach on the quality of end-of-life care that people receive, the coordination of care services more generally between the curative services that they might receive and the care that they receive on the hospice and also on the supportive services side, and also in terms of the use and cost of services more generally. Now a related question also is whether the concurrent care approach can also help address disparities that we've historically seen in hospice enrollment, for instance between blacks and whites, and also change the extent to which eligibility barriers have impeded enrollment more generally. Now the experience of some private insurance is a useful guide here, such as Aetna's Compassionate Care Program. Aetna has done very well with their Compassionate Care Program and Randy Krakauer and others have written about it. In particular, they've talked about how it can lessen the high-intensity service use at the end of life, increase earlier enrollment in hospice, and also lower service costs overall. Ultimately, though, we're going to have to see how this plays out in the Medicare fee-for-service environment, which is a very different population and a di very different setting from Aetna's commercial business. And so that's why we have the demonstration program, and that's why we'll have to remain tuned to the results. Thank you, Dr. Stevenson.